Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. As I've promised, we've got a new show launching very soon. This is a new standalone, serialized investigative podcast about this insane plot that was run by a former journalist, a music editor, in which this guy used his position as an editor, his influence over young interns and journalists and other people, uh, an aspiring DJ and models, all these young people who he had some kind of power over, he propositioned them to smuggle commercial quantities of cocaine into Australia. And a bunch of them did it, and they got caught and went to jail for years, and they had never done anything like that before. These were not kids who had criminal records. They were not desperate for cash. They were not indebted to the mob or to Mexican cartels, none of that. And so one of the big questions that we ask in this new series is, why? Why did they do this? Did they do it because they thought it was cool? The editor who put them up to it worked for Vice. 
the self-described hipster Bible. And after years of refusing to speak to the press, this guy reached out to us from his mom's house in the suburbs where he was under house arrest awaiting his prison sentence. And that's where we met him. And he told us everything. The result of those interviews and dozens more is our upcoming show, Cool Mules, hosted and reported by Canada Land senior producer Kasia Mihailovich. And this series will launch on Monday, March the 2nd. If you have not subscribed to Cool Mules yet, you're going to want to be subscribed to this podcast. Go do that now. And as you've probably guessed by now, Cool Mules is about a lot more than this one cocaine smuggling scheme. It is about the power and the pull of coolness itself. It's about vice. I have had an interest in vice for a long time, back before they were a global media empire, back before they were even a glossy magazine, before they were even called vice. I was kind of fascinated with them back when they were a Montreal newspaper called Voice of Montreal. At the time, I was a media-obsessed teenage undergrad student who had just moved to Montreal for university, and vice was the most exciting thing in town. Full disclosure, I I have had a handful of run-ins with them over the years. In fact, Vice was the first magazine to ever publish an article by me. And just getting that article in there, getting my name in Vice, that was worth so much more to me than the 50 bucks they'd agreed to pay me. The truth is, I knew a lot of people who would have gladly paid them to get their names in Vice. A lot of people just wanted to be a part of what they were doing. When I stopped by their office to collect my 50 bucks... I think I was motivated more out of a desire to just come hang out there than I was to get the money. Still, I wanted my money. And as it happened, their offices were just around the corner from my apartment in Old Montreal. I went and got some groceries on my way home from school and stopped by Vice. And so I arrived there. I walked up the stairs into their loft, and that's where I found one of the three Vice co-founders, the editor who had commissioned this article from me, Gavin McInnes. And Gavin ignored my requests for payment entirely. Instead, he zeroed in on my groceries. I had this big jumbo value pack of toilet paper sticking out of one of my plastic bags. And Gavin just focused in on it. And he kind of scrunched up his nose. And he looked at me and he said, Do you shit? He said it the same way that, like, a friend's cool older brother might look at your t-shirt and say, Do you like Pearl Jam? And then like, I don't know, minutes later, I was back on the street. I did not collect my $50. All I had was this sort of vague sense of of vulnerability and shame. I mean, instead of Gavin feeling ashamed for not paying me my lousy 50 bucks, he somehow got me to feel ashamed for the fact that I poo. He had somehow convinced me that pooing is uncool. I realized a couple of things in that moment. The first is that Gavin was going to be a millionaire. The second thing that dawned on me was just the enormous power that gets handed to someone when it becomes accepted that they get to say what's cool and what isn't. That is a power that works on insecure teenagers and it works on insecure geriatric billionaires. And I watched over the next couple of decades as Vice built a global empire using that power. 
Vice has always been, to me, one of the most interesting media stories out there, probably the most interesting Canadian media story. And it's one that I got to witness firsthand in little fragments from their earliest stages. And so when I started Canada Land in the very first year, I, I made this quick and dirty oral history on the early years of Vice. And one of the people who I spoke to for that episode back in 2014 was Vice co-founder Gavin McInnes. This occurred during a period of time after he was ousted by his co-founder's advice and during a time when he was trying to reinvent himself as a stand-up comedian. That didn't work out. And also, he was working at a hipster marketing company in New York, which is where I spoke to him. That didn't work out either. He was out the door there after he made a bunch of pretty hateful transphobic comments. I kind of caught him towards the beginning of his transition into whatever he is now. He was already doing hits on Fox News, but this was well before Gavin McInnes founded the Proud Boys neo-fascist street gang, before the alt-right was a thing, before red MAGA hats, before the rebel, before all of that. This was not an easy interview. It began with Gavin producing a bottle of Maker's Mark bourbon, and we went from there. It was very hard keeping him on track, but it answered a lot of questions I had about those early years of Vice and raised a bunch of other questions. And I was able to speak to a lot of other people who were involved during that period. And you'll hear from them, too. So today, as we get ready to launch Cool Mules, I'm going to play for you that episode again, this oral history about the early years of Vice magazine. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Garrett Johnson, Marcy Leonard, Bill Duncan, Jing Lo, Caitlin Skerritt, Donna Palmerhurst, Leah Bakaroff, and Ted. I'm Ted from Toronto, and I support Canada Land because I believe it's important that there are professional, independent Canadian news sources, and I know that costs money. So I hope my support helps to ensure that everyone involved at Canada Land gets paid a fair wage. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. So, Gavin, um, you and I have a long and complicated history. We've had a rough past, man. I I feel like we're beyond me apologizing, too. It's like, why bother? (laughs) It's like a deadbeat dad. I'm never going to be your dad. Yeah. We can at least be cordial. But you, you don't remember me. Yeah, I do. Didn't I draw a cover for your poetry book or something? That was another guy. Oh, uh, Jesus Christ. No, I didn't have a poetry book. Which one were you again? Did we fight? Well, my name is Robbie Dillon. My name's Rupert Bottenberg. Uh, my name is Lisa Gabriel. My name is Jess Lowe. I was the first official editor of Vice magazine. I actually helped deliver the first issue of Voice before they dropped the O and became Vice. So I was a columnist. I dated Gavin very briefly. Gavin was my boyfriend. He dumped me, and as part of my heartbreak, I went out with Shane, who was his best friend. That was like the worst relationship of my life. That was at the start of Vice. Uh, Gavin, um, initially some interest in sort of like making a name for himself as a, as, as a comic artist. I don't think he really put the discipline into developing the craft of drawing, but he was, he was very clear right away. He was an extremely funny guy. Shane had been traveling in Greece and Hungary, although... Now he says he was trading currency in Bosnia, which is the story that you would read in The New Yorker. Was Gavin like his boyfriend? So much fun. When it was good. When it was good, it was great. But he was also completely unhinged and totally, you know, you know, I couldn't trust him and all that other stuff. Sarouche had been in rehab, and when he was in rehab, he decided that he wanted to start a magazine. You know, in those days, like, it, it, it was really seat of the pants. Like, I know now it's this big multi-million dollar, you know, enterprise, but it really was. It was fucking three guys living in a loft, you know, like, they were living in the loft and working in the loft. So, that you know, Shane and, and Gavin had their beds and a little fridge and a shelf with, with canned goods. And Gavin slept on this gross futon with, like, cowboy and Indian wallpaper from an ancient era on the back. Like, you you couldn't set design that now, right? Because it would just look so fake. But they lived like they were feral. Describe what Montreal was like back then in the mid-late 90s. It was so fucking cheap. I mean, you hear about Lou Reed's New York, and he was still spending $800 a month for an apartment. Yeah. But in our sort of Lou Reed era of Montreal in the 90s, you could be paying 100 bucks a month. You could. And beer at the Biftec was 4 bucks for a pichet. Popcorn was free. Popcorn was free. So you would do pretty... Or you could DJ there and get free beer and make 20 bucks. Right. So, uh, yeah, you could sort of subsist there for a long time. And I think it, it invited a lot of weird artist types. A lot of fucking... Like Rick Trembles was a guy, and I think he feels like we ripped him off. But I don't think he understands how weird his cartoons are. It was like, dude, I know you think the world owes you something, but if you were in the real free market, you'd be homeless. Mm -hmm. But when we started, we had to go on welfare to get the job. Gavin was on welfare and I think got some kind of credit for working on this project. Shane got involved and started selling ads. Boys of Montreal was a workfare program. So it was like this idea that that project was going to kind of pull them up by the bootstraps. Gavin, I want to try to clear something up. You've written that 
it irritates you when people say that Vice began as a welfare project. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, because it implies that that welfare helped us and we needed it to start. It was actually the opposite of that. It was a hindrance. Uh-huh. In Montreal, the way they treated the Anglos was you're not bilingual if you have an accent in French. Like I can speak French, but when I say humour, it's not a perfect accent. Yeah. So ergo, I'm not bilingual. So the only jobs there for Anglophones were bike messenger, which I did for five years and almost died. Yeah. And some sort of government program. That's yeah. it. Because they were they had sort of closed off all the gaps with their stupid socialist fucking fascist long de Quebecois system. So we went in the back door, which was our only choice, went out like a zit into their stupid fucking Voice of Montreal was a multicultural paper that was supposed to document the Polish parade is in January and the Haitian uh, Caribbean fucking bongo parade is uh, uh, we're be playing oil drums on McGill Avenue on the march, which is why they got a grant and they yeah. were using us as a little cash cow where we would they'd lock us in a room and they would get checks they they didn't have to pay for us because we were through welfare and. Uh, they would, we'd see them high-fiving each other and doing shit, and we realized this is a fucking scam. We're in a Russian communist system, and we were the Department of Multiculturalism. So we left. I insisted we change the name to Vice, dropped the O. We obviously lost our welfare. We were now free market, and that's when we thrived. So we didn't start because of government socialist bullshit. We started despite that shit. I don't know that you've proven that. You, by your own account... You went to this company and started the magazine through them because they could pay you through this welfare program. Yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. The thing that people don't get about Montreal is it's this environment that is like a hand holding people down. Uh, I mean, I do remember that it was very hard to work as an Anglo in Montreal, might still be, but that's why programs like the one that you applied for existed, and you were happy to benefit from it until you outgrew it. No, we didn't which, outgrow did. it. We left it. We were we, but you're supposed we quit to. it because it was a ripoff. It's not like they, they, they released to. us into the sky like a, like a dove and said, go free. They, we broke out of a cage. Good. You're supposed to break out of the cage. You're not supposed to stay on welfare forever. It's supposed to give you a leg up. You guys are like poster children for government workfare grants. You built a business out of one. It's impli- you're implying that we a government grant is supposed to help young entrepreneurs train, get on their feet, and then it says, okay, you ready And now? then grow a world-class business. With no help from the government. That's not true. You wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been oh for that. God. You're not on Fox News. They did nothing but hold us back. We overcame their scam. You know, there was a lot of drugs, but not to the degree that work didn't get done. And I think Sarouche by then had gotten sober. So they were, they were really productive uh, they met deadlines. They uh, satisfied clients' needs. They paid their bills. I mean, they weren't they weren't idiots. Totally, totally self determining. Like I don't give a shit what anybody else thinks. I'm gonna crush everybody who gets in my way. I think that's how people who become super successful. That's kind of a common thread. They were very positive people. They're, you know, they come from successful backgrounds. You know, so someone like me, like I don't come from that. For example, at one point they offered me a quarter of the company for like twenty-five or thirty thousand, and and I, you know, I turned them down. I mean, you know, I, I thought I'd be throwing my money away. And to be fair, like I didn't want to work that hard. These guys were working. You know, I give them all the credit. They were working like day and night, and day and night, and day and night. That kind of creation myth as they tell it, is certainly not the story as I remember it. 
deceit has been a big part of their story from the very beginning. You know, one of the things that Shane started doing right as they became vice, he was, you know, trying to sell ads. And what he would say, they would, he would say, we're distributed across North America. And he would mail one copy of Vice magazine to a skateboarding store in Miami and a clothing store in San Francisco and, you know, Austin and claim technically that they were available across North America. There were no concerns about lying to get the money, right? My job at Vice was always to keep costs to nothing. So it was like building a tank that when we ran out of money, it could still plow forward because I could just write it all and lay it out and everything. I kept costs to nothing. I would do the pictures and I would do the drawings and I would write under pseudonyms and stuff. So how much of the magazine in those days was actually written by you? I wrote about... 80% 80% of it. Uh-huh. And, we, you know, we, we tried to get... You, you need more blacks writing. You need more women writing. In order to meet those demands, I eventually just had to become these blacks and women. Well, I'd also... The few freelance we did, I'd also force them into my mold. Yeah. Well, people complained that you'd, like, add paragraphs to the... Yeah. Show. And my attitude with that was, if your writing is so shitty that it needs me to add two paragraphs, I can't wait for you to quit. Yeah, he was a disaster in that respect, with no sense of ethics. You know, you don't put your own opinions into your writer's uh, words. You know, you can edit, you can clean up their writing, but you don't change their opinions and then put their name on it. That's piss poor ethics. Yeah, yeah, he did that to me. He did that to me with the blowjob article. Um, and he not only took that away, wouldn't pay me, he took my uh, my pseudonym, uh, I wrote it under a pseudonym, Linda Gondal, he took that out and, and basically put his name on it. You know, and that's just me. So you can imagine how many other people he treated that way over the years. I wrote this article called Was Jesus a Fag? And it was a pretty popular article. And Bill Maher called Vice and asked, uh, you know, for the, uh, the author of the, the article to come on the show. They never contacted me and they never reached out to me. And the next thing I know, Gavin is on Bill Maher representing my article, which, he, you know, I, I don't even know if she ever read it. You know, so he made this kind of disastrous uh, appearance on Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher representing my article, you know, that probably I should have been there. Gavin just kind of drooled all over this woman and and uh, got really drunk and, and made a bit of an ass of himself. And that's kind of the beginning of their big media empire. The way they reacted to me wanting money for Dear Diary was to just fire me and hire, you know, Leslie Arfin. <laughs> like, okay. After all those years and after coming up with the idea and, you know, creating a female readership out of it in some ways. And, and uh, that was hurtful. At the time, yeah, it just felt disrespectful because they were blowing up. And everybody around them was like, where's, where's mine? And nobody was asking for much. I didn't want much. But I didn't want them to publish my work and pay me nothing, not even to give me a stipend of 150 bucks. I wasn't even asking for a lot. It was insulting, and at that point, I really did have to say, "Well, fuck you." You know, I can't, I can't, I can't keep doing this and feeling good about it. So I, I, I doubt you would remember this, but I, I actually did some writing for you back in '98. Uh, are you the one who wanted to do thing about how Jews are superior? Yes. It's called the Jubermensch. Sounds familiar. Yeah, I remember yeah. now. So why was that? Did, I, did that bother me? I don't think so. You, you said it was a funny piece, but, uh, but that you don't like Jews. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's funny. I literally said, I do not like Jews. No, you literally said, it's a funny piece, but we don't like Jews. They get enough media attention already. 
Really? Yeah. Well, that was probably a joke. I thought so. Like, I, I figured at the time you were just baiting me, but you left just enough room in there for doubt that I could never be totally sure that you were just trolling. No, I think the, the concept of trolling and just putting something out there to piss people off is a myth. And I don't think you were doing that with your Jubermensch thing. You were saying something you genuinely believe. Not really. Uh, I, I, it was pretty asinine. Like I was, I was 20 years old and, and, and trying to write something uh, provocative. Well, you know? They, you know, they say with the black market in Russia, the Jews are controlling the Russian economy now, like six of the seven oligarchs are Jewish. But one of the reasons that is is because they were ostracized from the real world and they created a black market out of necessity. And then when the real world collapsed, all we got is the Jew system. It's like the classic anti-Semitic thing of uh, like Jews were forced into money lending because the church wouldn't let Christians lend money uh, for interest, for profit. Uh, usury was forbidden, so, so Jews weren't allowed to own land. They, they got into money lending out of necessity and, uh, and then ended up being ostracized as, uh, as Shylocks and parasites. Maybe they were ostracized for a good reason. Definitely, it was all about getting attention, getting a reaction. It was, it, you know, it was very much a, a teenage boy kind of uh, aesthetic, you know. And and it's an easy enough thing to do if we put ads with naked women, you know, on the back cover of the magazine, and then leave it all around the the, the women's studies department at Carleton University. We'll get attention. We'll get some kind of reaction. It had to kind of grow into their sensibility, and a lot of that had to do with Gavin McInnes showing up and bringing kind of a raunchier, more provocative, um, un-PC side to things, you know, amusing rudeness. The do's and don'ts obviously were a huge part of that, of the early vice. And uh, again, that's sort of a cruelty in the coverage that was exhilarating, I think, because people didn't say mean things about people on print the way they did, and blatantly sexist. Gavin invented uh, that voice of the magazine. Not necessarily the magazine itself as the business model. You know, everybody knows Shane is the brains behind it. And the music and pop culture, so much of that is steeped through Sarusha's sensibilities. He's always had a finger on the pulse. But the actual glue, the voice itself, the irreverence, the, the, the sort of youthful brilliance of it all, the precocity, that's really Gavin McInnes. Maybe one of the only things about Vice that is not disputed, Gavin, is is that, you know, the, the tone of the magazine, the voice of the magazine was your voice. Uh, you were the voice and the public face of Vice for, for, for years. And, like, it, it was such a house style, the Vice tone. It was, it was almost like Mad Magazine, where everything in the magazine has that one comic voice. Like a magazine where uh, I, 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 I know the voice so well, but I can't actually name the name of any one individual writer who, who emerged from it. I mean, like, Vice was maybe the magazine for that generation, and I can't name one influential or, or famous or, like, important writer uh, who came out of it. Oh, well, what about Ryan McGinley? He's a photographer. Like, uh, there's, you had a lot of photographers who came out. I mean, uh, McGinley and Terry Richardson. Uh, there's probably some cartoonists who got famous through Vice. Yeah, I never thought about that. Who was a... Johnny Ryan was a cartoonist. Who was a great writer? Uh, I, I can't think of any, but be that as it may, though I don't think there was an influential writer, you had a terrific influence on writing. Like, the do's and don'ts, which you wrote, you know, these uh, 
mean, funny little commentaries on people's clothing, uh, little little photo captions written in a very like conversational tone. Like that, that's how everybody writes on the internet right now. Like that's how like Facebook today reads a lot like Vice circa 1999. Well, I think I, what I want when I <laughs> I approached writing from a non-writing standpoint. A lot of writers who went to journalism school, they, you know, they read Hunter S. Thompson and they had this whole persona built up in their heads. And it was like, it was the same intro too. I woke up hungover two hours late for the interview. Luckily, Ghostface was late too. Two guys on the same page of shit or something. <laughs> That's not you, <laughs> this, you this fucking loser. Just be yourself. I was nervous to yeah. meet Ghostface. I'm a huge Wu-Tang fan, fan. And then I meet him and he's this old 45-year-old black dude. Yeah. Just like a toddler. Who's really into food. He's pretty funny, yeah. And I, I just would, I would say to writers, I go, just fucking write a letter to your brother and take out the inside jokes. What? Write all caps and like write things like, okay? The right, one thing I could say about the writing back then and maybe the magazine's influence was that... Uh, we taught people to just write like themselves. Well, my understanding is Gavin's not involved with Vice not at all anymore. Time, There's been, there was some kind of a bad breakup. You know, it's a story that I've heard several different versions of over the years, and, and I don't know what's true, so it would be really specious of me to say, well, the reason that they scrubbed him from the masthead is this. I have no idea. Knowing that Shane's an asshole couldn't have come as a surprise to him, right? If someone fucks you in that way, if you've seen them do the same thing to... Uh, like hundreds of other people, you're not going to take it as personally, even if it does mean that your baby is effectively no longer your baby. And I think it is sad that he gets no credit, but I also know, you know, on a, on a personal level, you know, some of that is, is you make your bed, you lie in it. And some of that is that, you know, he poked the bear uh, and just kept poking it. And, uh, and I wasn't horribly surprised, even though I was sad for him to hear that, that that legacy, his own legacy, has been all but erased. But, you know, it's not for nothing. Uh, Shane and Stuart are smart guys, and they're not vindictive. Is it fair that it ended up this way? No. But Vice wouldn't be global if Gavin had been driving it. There's just no way that he could have reined himself in. I think when you're talking about millions and millions of dollars, he would has been a real risk. And I, and I imagine the story is a little bit more complicated than, than we'll probably ever know until one of them writes about it. So I think that there is um, some legal uh, blocks that won't allow him to do that. In fact, part of the deal, um, I think, has, you know, not only he's been erased, uh, you know, the legacy, but I don't think he's allowed to tell his story. So that's, that's really the ultimate irony, isn't it? I want my name on this shit. I did it. Yeah. Like the only reason I say I invented hipsters is so no one else takes it. But if no one else was claiming it, I would just let it be free. <laughs> you just don't want anyone else to steal your, sh your legacy, you know? I guess in my old age, I'm regretting being so anonymous and being so anti-individualism uh, because, yeah, it affects your legacy. But I think that Vice trying to, their Stalinist revisionism is sort of blown up in their face because it's like saying Vince Neil wasn't in Motley Crue. I guess. I mean, media people know that you were involved. Well, maybe that, that was you. Do you think 20-year-olds don't know who I am? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they know you from your, like, YouTube videos, but uh, I don't know if they know you from that. I mean, I don't really give a shit. When I first met Gavin, his uniform was a pair of skinny cords, big boots, and 
uh, plaid shirt or ripped, stinky T-shirt, facial hair, and tattoos. And now when I walk around London or New York or Toronto or Ottawa or frankly, Kingston, Ontario, a solid half of the young people walking around look like that. It was so cool, but it wasn't trying to be cool. I I can't really explain it. And that's what's kind of interesting about the Vice story is that it wasn't like they were trying to be cool. I see it now. I see other people trying to be cool or trying to be like Vice. Even Vice now is trying to be like Vice. What do you think about Vice now? I mean, since, since your departure, it's grown exponentially, and Shane has sort of assumed your role as the, uh, the figurehead, the face, and the voice uh, of the Vice brand. Yeah, I mean, I really can't comment about Vice post-2008. I haven't looked at it. I, don't, I haven't seen the show. I've never been to the site. Um, I would assume, because it was taken over by the head of marketing, that it's focused on marketing and it's low on substance. Um, while while still making the big play for like you know respectability, they've grown up. They're doing journalism now. Are we can do Vice this whole interview. No, we don't have to do Vice the whole interview. We we can talk about what you're up to now. You're you're uh, you're a dad now. You're on Fox News doing punditry. Uh, you do um, advertising like uh, in, internet videos. I got three kids and I got to hustle making fucking Vans comedy sketches. Vans the uh, the the skate shoe brand. Well, you got to pay attention to the market, and I think a lot of millennials uh, have just given up. They go, we're not going to have pensions, we're not going to have social security, so we want to go to Africa and uh, explore the ecology there, and then maybe just come back and do watercolors with our tits. Are you anti-millennial, Gavin? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, but my, you know, I still feel sympathy for them. I just wish they get their act together. And, uh, you just got to keep your ear to the ground and, and get off your lawn. Get off my fucking lawn. It's such a weird thing to hear from the uh, inventor of hipsters. It's been a very serious interview. Gavin was you know, brilliant and so much fun to work with when he was on your side. But, you know, when he's not on your side, um, it's an it's it's. It's awful. It's just awful. And, uh, you, you know, he leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And I walked away from there shaking my head and thinking, never fucking again. And um, I was bruised by that. But And it didn't have to be that way. You know, that's the, that's the bottom line. It never had to be that like that. But with him, you know, for some reason it did. And I can't, I can't you know, pretend to know why. Shane was ruthless and absolutely determined. It's incredible that exactly what he promised would happen months after he started working with The Voice of Montreal has happened, right? Global domination has happened. The reason it happened is because nothing got in the way of that goal, right? He didn't care who he fucked, who he destroyed. No, no, like, you know, I know there's people out there walking around going, oh, Vice ripped me off or Vice took advantage of me or this or that, like, you know, because uh, maybe they didn't pay all the writers at the beginning and they're really just babies. Like, they were very happy at the time to have a voice that somebody would even publish their stuff. You know, and it was the beginning of that period when people were actually starting to, to ask you to write for free. Now it's pretty much the norm. And I think they sort of set uh, a lot of the tone for where a lot of other uh, media and entertainment would go. For a print medium, it was very internet, right? It was kind of like internet writing before the internet actually happened. You know, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I became a writer because of Vice. Um, I got an agent after that. I mean, things changed for me. And when that magazine went from Montreal to New York and it blew up, 
you know, I was part of that uh, on a very small scale for the first couple of years. It makes me proud to be a Canadian and to be part of its, you know, small, small part of its uh, of its origin story. I had a time in my life working and writing for Vice. Overall, my feeling is like, look, those guys worked really hard. They deserve what they have. And, you know, it's an incredible story. And I'm glad to have been a part of it. If you, if you could just make sure that that's part of whatever I say, you know, I would really appreciate it. That's your Canada Lent. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, why not tell someone about it? If you, if you found a great new taco place, you would tell people about it. Or maybe you wouldn't because you're selfish and you don't want it to be overrun by people because it suddenly gets popular. Even though that would be really good for the proprietors, it would be bad for you, so you keep your mouth shut about it. That's not the case with Canada Land. You can tell people that you like Canada Land and it won't, uh, it won't mean you have to wait later for a table. This analogy isn't working anymore. Please review Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Last week's oppo was an incredible, uncomfortable interrogation of a Huawei executive. He got piled on by Jen Gerson and Sandy Garasino. You should listen to that, and you should listen to this week's Commons, the final episode of their Dynasty series. This is a dramatic story filled with betrayal, death, and wrestling. Today's episode was originally produced by me in 2014. Kasia Mihailovich is the senior producer of Canada Land. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, if you like this podcast and you want to get ad-free versions of it and all of our other podcasts and you want to support the work that we do, you can do that at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.